Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with John and Ksenia, Ksenia House. Uh, we're at La Cave uh, Wine Bar in Portland. It's August 13th, 2019. Thank you both for joining us today. We really appreciate this. Uh, let's start with the obvious question, which is why wine? Uh, I'll start, I guess. Uh, the, for me, the most straightforward, honest answer is really because of John. Um, I certainly, I kind of know for a fact that I probably wouldn't be in this industry if it wasn't for uh, John. Um, I, I grew up in Serbia, in Eastern Europe, and uh, it's a you know pretty culturally traditional uh, country, and I was supposed to sort of follow in my my mom's and dad's footsteps and, and go to either medical school or law or engineering, you know, very kind of straightforward career path. Um, and eventually I chose dental school, so yeah. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was in dental school for about a year. And, uh, and at that point I really, I found a way basically to come back to U.S. and where previously I was here as an exchange student in high school. And this was basically late 90s, so um, right after the breakdown of former Yugoslavia. And so my parents, especially my dad, was eager to, to you know, get me out. And so through different circumstances and, and um, a lot of help from friends, I, I came here, uh, or Florida, mm -hmm. and fast forward two years later, I met John in college, and I think that was 2001, 2001, mm -hmm. yep. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how it started, really. Like, oh, Did you drink wine in Serbia? I did not. I mean, there, like there in was. High school or yeah. What yes. Did you drink? Yes. I, I I drank a lot of riesling. Um, there was no. But it's not. It was like Welsh riesling, or <laughs> yes. Right. Um, yes. Maybe not even Rhine a bottle. You know? Yeah, Rhine riesling. It was mostly like one liter bottles. Uh, but not not anything. It was yeah. I I didn't even enjoy it probably at the time. Um, but just there to, to kind of, yeah, loosen up the joints. <laughs> exactly, you know? exactly. Um, yeah, and so at that point, I met John, and I kind of let you lead into the rest of the story. Uh, you know, I why why wine is because my dad said I couldn't be a chef, uh, and that was precluded by. Him telling me I could be anything I want to be. <laughs> I know I want to be a chef. Yeah, you can't accept that. Um, he had put himself through first, you know, first person in his family to probably graduate college or graduate high school then college and put himself through medical school and work uh, nights, weekends, and holidays his whole life and said, you know, 
you can't become a chef because you'll work nights, weekends, and holidays. And we had a cousin in the family that did just that. Um, and I was, you know, 20, didn't like wine, didn't really like to drink. and But everyone who was into food as much as me, which was not, a, I think, a thing at the time. You know, there wasn't like a foodie term. Uh, they loved wine. And when we met in this biology class, I think January 01, like our second year of biology, uh, I was interested in microbiology, Xenia molecular, you know, we started working in the lab together. That's a different story we can talk about. Um, I, I found a professor and I would sit, go to his office hours and a friend of his who was another professor would show up and he had a composition book, a white and black one, that was filled with white wine. The dude only drank white and mainly white burgundy. You know, which I quickly learned was highly unattainable in my budget. And uh, there was a local wine shop. He said, I buy all my wines at Tim's Wine Market on Ivanhoe Row in Orlando, Florida, where I was born and raised. And I walked in with my tip money from the Taqueria Quetzalcoatl that I worked at. And I have $35. I don't like wine. I think I might like white wine. I would like a $35 bottle of white wine. And I actually saw Willa Kinsey Pinot Gris which was like the only $25 Pinot Gris at the time. And uh, they said, no, 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 you don't want that. Uh, not because it wasn't good, but because it wasn't gonna open any doors for me right away. I walked out with three bottles of wine. It was a, a Vernaccia de San Gimignano, a Pinot Blanc from Alsace, and a Sauvignon Blanc from, uh, from Napa. And they did wine classes. Uh, on Wednesday nights and for 25 bucks. They never asked if I was 20. I think they asked once, are you 21? Yeah, yeah, I was gonna be 21 in four months, so for me it didn't matter. And I wasn't trying to drink wine, I just wanted to figure it out. Like, why do people love it so much? I tried, we were, I remember having that Vernacci. I don't know if you were over at the time or if you, I don't think you came over to my place for like the first four months. Uh, but I remember trying it thinking, this is terrible. For that $35, I got three bottles of white wine and they were all steely and minerally and you just don't wrap your head around it. I went to that wine class and I smelled Monchoff Riesling, Snoqualmie Chardonnay, and Huntington Earthquake Sauvignon Blanc. That's not around anymore. Side by side, I was done. Buttered popcorn, candied gummy bears, and the Riesling, right? <laughs> Snoqualmie Chardonnay, buttered popcorn, and the uh, it smelled like cantaloupes in the Huntington Earthquake Sauvignon Blanc. I get it. This stuff is all made from grapes. It smells so different, and they were all like fifteen dollar bottles of wine. I was done. We finished with Moscato d'Asti. I was I I can't afford to buy this, but I gotta have it. You get five percent alcohol. It just smells like roses. I still love it today. Some people are like, I don't drink sweet. No, 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 I'll, I'll have that. I'll have it all. So uh, that diversity for me, it was just like there was clearly an endless uh, abyss of information, and I really crave that. So, and it was tough because we just met and didn't have any money, and uh, yeah, I, there was no looking, no turning back, no looking back on anything else. 
I knew I had to be in wine for the rest of my life. So I was really lucky. I found I got the calling, as my mom would say. She thought I'd be a preacher. <laughs> Sacramental wine, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's not, not, not too far off there. So, so tell me how it gets from that point to you being in Oregon with, with working in wine. How does it? How, what's the next step? It, um, well, it, it, it's really hard to handle John's enthusiasm, and so it really. You know, every every year as he was learning about wine and getting deeper and deeper in the, the enthusiasm was just like, you know, like turning up the volume, turning, and it slowly starts penetrating into, you know, into everything. And, and eventually, you know, me coming to Oregon is through, uh, through John's nagging almost about wine and, and, and also, like there was, you know, uncertainty about. Uh, I, I really, I didn't find myself. I, I wasn't really sure what exactly I was going to do so with you were going a mo to school. molecular biology degree, and and I was certainly was just going to be going to graduate school or you know going back to dental school. And rather than doing that, John said, "Well, why don't you why don't you go work harvest? Like try and uh, let's find your place to go work harvest at, uh, in Oregon." That was but that was fun. like the you know end of '06, beginning of '07. Right. Because you we graduated around the same time. Uh, it took a while for us to finish because we had to work jobs, right? I mean, wasn't we could just go to school full time? You know, like we had to generate some income, and uh, you know, you were working as much as you could right. to get there. But you worked at a and genetic. Yeah, I uh, institute citrus, right? Right. For at the University of Florida, I, I worked in a yeah, transformation lab, and you know during that time I was experiencing wine and drinking a lot of wine with John, but never really crossed my mind that this is something that I will end up doing um, until we came here or we, I came here. You were drinking a lot because, like, with me. Although nothing compared to what we drink now, I mean, <laughs> right? I would have known how. Yeah. So yeah, we, you know, I I started moving boxes at that wine shop. I'd show up when I kind of got the vibe when sales reps were showing up on Mondays and Tuesdays, and they're coming to pour wine, and I got in my head like I can't afford to buy this wine, but I need to. It was just data, you know. How do I taste as much as possible? And then they would let me sneak in on the tastings. I kind of got to know the sales reps. Um, and they're like, who, who the hell is this little kid? And, uh, oh, John, okay, they got to know me. I started moving boxes occasionally. I would buy a bottle or they'd send me, hey, this is, this is Cote du Rhone. Like, take this home. So they were constantly building a framework, a, a tasting framework that was built on all the classics. And uh, I said, man, the only way I'm gonna taste more wine is by getting a job, buying it or selling it. And I got really close to getting a job with a really good distributor in, in, in Florida when I was, you know, maybe 21 and a half, almost 22, and then the guy's like, wait, I'm crazy, I can't get this kid, he doesn't have any experience. So I went to work for Whole Foods in the cheese uh, specialty department, and um, that's where I kind of learned, like, I got to taste more wine and interact with mm -hmm. guests coming in, customers who 
you know, they didn't know what they were looking for, and I had just tasted a wine, and I was, as Xenia said, just unbelievably enthusiastic. Like, I just all wanted to talk about wine all the time. I still feel that way. Um, and it was just, okay, how do I, the dream is like, to make it. How, how do we move from Orlando somewhere to learn and then save money to make it just the dream was so big. Mm -hmm. I used to walk our dog like around the condo to just horrifically humid area that we lived in and I would walk the dog and like think how God, what if a vineyard was here and like just trying to envision this dream and I then realized that the only way to make the leap was through sales. We there was no way we would be able to work harvest together and save up money to start something mm -hmm. legit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, after working at Whole Foods for a year and a half to two years, I think I was 23, just about to turn 24, and one of the best distributors in uh, Florida gave me a shot. My, my sales rep, when I was, I got to buy wine for like six months at Whole Foods. The buyer left, they gave me a chance. Um, had a lot of fun actually in those six months, tasted even more wine, and then one of the, I said I either want to work for Stakehold or Augustine. Um, they're still kind of around today mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Florida. They had the best books, and uh, Augustine Wine Imports, they gave me a shot. They, uh, they were importing uh, everything from Terry Thesis wines to Michael Skernick wines to uh, Joe Dresner or the Louis Dresner portfolio, which is one of the reasons why we're here. Uh, so I got to sell wine for a couple of years, and I didn't have Disney to sell to, and but the Orlando, Winter Park, Oviedo area just boomed mm -hmm. at that time with tons of cool restaurants, and I'm super enthusiastic and. I'm so excited every day that I have these wines in my bag that I get to taste them like eight times a day, <laughs> that I'm going to memorize every single one of them. Like it was more for me that I didn't even, all the no's that, all the, re the no's and the rejection you get from sales just, it just went right through me and I, I never felt it. And uh, Oregon Pinot Camp is happening. A couple of my buyers are going right mm -hmm. every year. I can't go because I'm a sales rep. I just you know that it's it's meant for buyers. Mm -hmm. And one of them comes back. Is Eric Cooperman is his name, and he was buying for Grand Cru Selections. He's still or Grand Cru is just a wine shop. Um, and Eric throws Oregon Pinot Camp in Orlando in August of 2007. And Harry Peterson Netri shows up and Dave Adelsheim show up. They're in my portfolio. I've never met them because the sales directors were always coming to Florida. Mm -hmm. And we were killing it, or at least I was selling a ton of their wine. I didn't know it, but I was just excited, you know, so I'm selling everyone this wine. And uh, I decide I'm going to pick these guys up in your Toyota Matrix and I'm going to drive them everywhere they need to go. I'm going to save them time and money. I'm going to be their chauffeur. I'm going to be at their side. And the long story short is, uh, Harry and I created a bond, and I said, you know, my wife, Xenia, would love to work harvest. I kind of was speaking for her at the time. Yes. She did not want to work harvest. 
And I said, like, you know, she's done with this molecular biology degree, and he has a degree in chemistry and, and uh, English. So yeah. I knew that would, like, you know, a little spark in the brain. And then he said, oh, well, you know, we've got a, we've got a Kiwi that might not make it from New Zealand. And if, if they don't, then I'll get Xenia the, sh the slot. Mm -hmm. Like two weeks later, he said, yeah, the visa didn't come through. And then a week later, Senia was taking a direct flight from Port, uh, Orlando to Portland. Yeah, that was um, 2007. Yeah. Worst vintage to start. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the best, but, really. You want to start at the worst time. Uh, but the, yeah, that, that certainly didn't matter for me because uh, once I came to Oregon, it's like, you know, the everything about this place was different. Um, the air was different and you you just felt, for me, the landscape was kind of reminding me of, of Serbia to some degree and there was like something familiar and something nostalgic about the place and, and uh, everybody at Shahelam were um, extremely generous and, and nice. It was just a, it's like, Wow, this this place is amazing. And do you remember when we were in the kitchen <laughs> before you left? I'm like, you're gonna have to drink beer. Oh, I'm right. No, I hated beer. Yeah, I I hated beer. And and what and was it like two point, weeks in? Well, not even two weeks in. It was. I think we were bottling. And you know, first thing you do is like at the end of the day, you start drinking beer and IPAs. You know, IPAs. That pale ale is really good. <laughs> What? Exactly. I told you you would like it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's kind but of a baseline for our whole uh, relationship. The whole, yes. Um, and even though, you know, 07 was such a challenging vintage to me, it really didn't matter because um, I caught a bug. You know, it was, uh, it was nothing that I've ever really imagined. And um, it was physical and really hard work, but it's also with all these amazing people uh, coming Technical. from you know, across right. the world. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, there was you know a lot of science that I understood, and it was easy, and it wasn't. Um, but there was you know passion behind it a lot, and I, it was just. Mind what? you, we had only been to California as yeah. far as grape growing regions and Serbia. Mm -hmm. We visited, we were going around there. I have like my Jancis Robinson, you know, <laughs> 1991 yeah. out of date book that they don't even print anymore. Okay, what's the grape of certain, you know, trying to get a grasp of things. But we went to California, I think, a year before. Right. Of course, totally fell in love. But it's a very alone. yeah. It it was a very different experience. Like mm -hmm. it was visiting wineries in, in Napa and then coming to Oregon and then coming to Shehalem especially. Um, you know, seven was a really abundant vintage for us, and it's a it was a very uh, difficult facility to kind of you know make a wine and and. Um, and so you, you know you you've learned a lot, and there was a lot of days where you were working outside. I don't think I you know took off my rain gear the entire time I was here because <laughs> so you know, once it, it was it was yeah such and such. Rainy so I'm year. coming to visit. You know, as much, there was this direct flight sponsored by Disney World with Alaska, ninety nine dollars each way. So you know on on 
one or two of the weekends, you know, I could fly out and come and visit. Uh, but it was raining the whole time. I'm like, wow, it is, it is what everyone says. <laughs> it rains all the time in Seattle and Portland. Wow, that's kind of a bummer. Maybe we should look at California. Um, but I, you know, I think we both fell in love with Harry and the whole Shehalem crew. And by the end of that year, a friend of our, Cynthia made, obviously she's incredibly lovely and made tons of friends. And one of them called her, I don't know if, I think it was in December, like, hey, David Zorowski, like the director of sales of Shehalem is leaving. And, you know, John should write Harry an email. And I did with all of my enthusiasm. Mind you, I'm like 26. I've only sold wine for a distributor for like maybe three years. Um, they flew me out, they were interviewing a bunch of people and for some reason, and I talked to Harry about it not too long ago, like, I don't think I would have ever hired me just because of age alone. And, you know, we had a nice moment. He's just like, I, I do it all over again, 10 times over. I think that's close to what he said. And I was just incredibly grateful for it. They moved, they gave us a little stipend to move from Orlando to Portland, basically February 1, 2008. Xenia starts working in the lab and I'm like, the director of sales of this 15, 20,000 case, world-renowned Pinnacle Oregon producer. And I think it was no. only two months later I had a nervous breakdown <laughs> when I, on the day of my 27th birthday. Um, and then of course later that year the uh, global financial crisis hits, but very few wineries are, believe it, because things were so good they were so hard, really leading up to uh, sideways. Mm -hmm. There was a blip and there was some growth and then 9-11 happened and it slowed down. And I know because Harry was very transparent with our uh, sales. I could look deep many years back. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was tough. You know, Pinot Noir has not, was not what it is today. And that really started post sideways whether we want to admit it or not for real it was an education of the American consumer which is you know the greatest uh, consumer if to, to, to grab if we can if we can educate them and we now fast forward today are trying to continue to push the, the, the dry Riesling not always dry but you know seemingly dry Riesling world forward so you still have at this point you still have this dream of, of making wine, of, of doing of doing the next the next thing. So at what point mm. does 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 Ovum start becoming a a, a reality or or a or a, a blip in the future? I I, I think for for me the, even at the time like even though there there might have been inkling of doing something, I still didn't think it was going to be as serious as it is today. Mm -hmm. I always thought that it was. It will be a couple hundred cases, and that will be that. And we'll still have our day jobs, and and you know things will. Um, but it's, it's, it never. I should have known better, of course. Um, <laughs> well, I yes. think you know you're skipping over the most critical part of our relationship. Is if Xenia doesn't say no like three to <laughs> twenty-three times, 
then it's not a good idea and that's exactly what she said about all of them and so you know i don't know how many times it took but I, i'll never forget being at uh, eat oyster bar we were having brunch and over a bottle of like gaston chiquet grower champagne and uh, i'm like we're doing this we, we had saved up around $30,000, I think 27 grand to be exact, to buy a house in Portland. I said, we're starting Ovum. Uh, the conviction was as strong as we have to move somewhere to take the next leap. And for me, uh, even though the economy was just starting to hint at rebounding, um, I said, if we don't start now, we'll regret it forever. And Cynthia's like, you're doing it all on your own. <laughs> and it was very tough well, because I had been traveling the country and I didn't get to spend as much time in the cellar. We rode home together, right? We're driving an hour there and an hour back, just basically talking about production the whole time and how would we do things. And in the back of my mind, I had fallen in love with um, Louis, the Louis Dresner imports and Joe Dresner just a real quick aside, was a pioneer of what he called real wines from France mainly. They were native fermented wines that were grown in vineyards that maybe were organic, maybe they were sustainable, but they were mindfully grown for the wine, not for some financial reason. And they're making things like Muscadet, you know, with native yeast and only adding enough sulfur for the wine to have whatever life they wanted it to have. And we came out here and learned the technical side of winemaking, which was just incredibly crucial for moving the industry forward. You, there were a lot of mistakes happening in the early years, and a lot of folks were maybe a little too timid to try Oregon wines. and. Uh, I don't know why I looked at you when I said it. You weren't timid, but, um, but you know, the consistency was my parents' generation, the baby boomers, they, they liked consistency. They liked consistent outback, olive garden. They wanted the wines to taste the same. That did not happen here. People like Harry Peterson Edry brought in consistency to the stage. Right. And we learned how to and make wines yeah, that it's, way. It was a, you know, the for, for somebody new getting in the wine industry, especially on the production side, being at Shehalem is really, like it's, there's only a handful of wineries. Uh, diversity of wines and Harry's extremely technical. Yes. Um, there were, you know, a lot of barrel fermentation, you know, stainless steel uh, tank fermentation, different varietals. Whole uh, cluster, decent, yeah, it was, like it was just a, a, a lot of different uh, options and, and opportunities to, to learn. So I always say learning how to make wine at Shehalem is like learning how to cook at Alinea. Yeah. <laughs> Three Michelin star restaurant Chicago. You know, there's just every tool necessary to take that product and turn it into whatever you want it to be. So those wines, and that, that's where, you know, this idea of ovum started to be born was, wow, that uh, the, these Rieslings are super complex at Shehalem, even though most of the buying public was not adopting that right. enthusiasm. I was still out there, you know, banging the Riesling gong and then, okay, we'll pour stainless steel Chardonnay and Pinot and then Ries more Riesling. Um, and the idea was like, oh, well, what if we combine every, all of the precision we learned at Shehalem 
with the heart and soul of what we felt when we drank the Dresner wines. Hmm, what would come of that? So I started, you, you guys don't know me that well, but I'm gonna ask everyone. Like, and I remember asking Pat Dudley at Bethel Heights, like, wait, why don't, why doesn't anybody ferment Riesling in barrel, like native ferment? She's like, sweetie, you don't, you don't <laughs> think that's been done before? We did that for decades, and one would be sweet, one would be dry, one would be reduced. And I, that's when I knew, like, oh, we definitely have to do it. Mm -hmm. Because that path was blazed in a time where precision wasn't a given. Mm -hmm. yeah. Where statistical level, research level winemaking wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. So we could take that and... Right. But and I, I think it's also at a time where there was a lot of influence coming out of Davis. And you had to go to school and you have to be a very, you know... Um, like educated technical winemaker and this is the only way you can do it and and I think now in the last probably um, five years if, if not maybe a little bit longer people are slowly kind of starting to depart from from and kind of going more into a intuitive and and um, less not manipulated but you know you know what I mean just less uh, it's a natural pendulum, right? Yeah. I mean, the pendulum swung from super correct, precise wines. Mm -hmm. Now we're into a super natty, natural wine world, which when we started Ovum, we thought, yeah, I think there wasn't really a natural wine word that was buzzing around. I mean, it was deep in the undercurrents of, you know, certain New York bars and certainly in London and Paris, but not out here. I thought, well, are our wines natural? I don't know. We we knew in my business plan that I wrote on a red eye going somewhere for Shehalem was like, we're going to take this money and we're going to buy fruit not just from Willamette. We're going to go to cool climates all throughout Oregon. We're, gonna, we're, we're not going to make great wines or bad wines. These are going to be reflections of the time and place no matter what. And the no matter what was just... We have to find if there are Grand Cru's or if certain varieties really belong where they're planted. And the only way to do that in my mind is to take the monetization of that business out of the equation and to make a wine in a very transparent way. You know, native ferment, nothing is added except for sulfur. And we chose to ferment wine, wines in a neutral vessel. At that time, it was neutral oak. And that was just, hey, transparency. If it tastes good, great. It's not about us. It's about the time and the place. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if we to me, if we add acid or we subtract it, we're taking the time and the place out of it and inputting ourselves instead. Totally cool, right? Some, maybe a winemaker harvests uh, that Riesling if she doesn't like acid as much, so she deacidifies it a little bit to bring it more in balance. But you just took, you, you put yourself in front of the time and the place. So that's kind of, um, was a bit of the impetus and the, the structural framework for what we were doing at Ovum. And uh, in 2011, we took that down payment on a house and bought 
like 12 barrels or so. Yeah, it, it was <laughs> we made insignificant. Yeah. We made three Rieslings and one converts, and I'll never forget sending it just like, this is the worst idea ever. <laughs> we need, let's make one wine, like two well, barrels. And it was experiment. It's like and I said, you three, can't. Three different Rieslings? Like, are you serious? Yeah. How are you going to sell this, first of all? The hardest grapes like, to sell. Yeah. In a Gewurztraminer, nobody's drinking Gewurztraminer. I mean, if no one was drinking yeah. Riesling, like, was the no one was drinking Gewurztraminer. At least they can pronounce Riesling. They can't yeah. pronounce Gewurztraminer. Yeah. My mom still yeah. can't say Gewurztraminer. <laughs> yeah. That's good, though. So we, we, it, when we were reading about you guys, you mentioned that drinking ovum wine should be like listening to AM radio in, in stereo. Yeah. Tell, tell me what that, what that means and, and what, you're, what you're going for with ovum wine. Yeah, so. well, I came up with it. So I won't make you try and explain. Um, to me, it was taking exactly what I said before, the precision of Shehalem's technique and applying it to an old-fashioned, if not kind of forgotten, technique here uh, right so you hear crackles on the mic right you hear the vinyl cutting right mm -hmm. and yet the sound is coming through excellent speakers it's something from the past coming through today yep. it's it's sort of kind of embracing those little imperfections that you know nuances mm that are, you know, there just naturally. In fact. Rather than trying well, to fix it yeah. all, every single thing. Mm -hmm. Because you're, you know, you're trying to fit within a mold or within a number, like, no, remove all of that and just let's, let's focus on the wine. Yeah, I think it's a lot like recording an artist live. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm there is something more real about that and when you make precise things it's often taking the human element out in the case of wine i think making precise wines is often the winemaker getting more involved with the wine which in one way is super cool because it's kind of a real uh, reference point to who they are in that time unfortunately i my sales narrative brain is saying a lot of them also tie in, oh, this wine is from the vineyard in this time. And those narratives don't often work honestly well together. Monetarily and financially, they work very well. For me, it was just, hey, um, we're not talking about flaws here, no. but imperfections in the wine. Maybe there's too much acid and the wine's out of balance. I'll never forget a friend of mine saying, but aren't you worried about not making balanced wines? No. That's what the vintage is there for, and that's why we embrace something that's different. You go to see an artist, and the song they record, or the song they're playing live every night is slightly different, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's more exciting to me than the same thing, just putting that song on over and over. You tire of it. So you're making... Ex pretty much exclusively or exclusively white wine and you're mm. embr embracing imperfections. Mm. So tell me about the, re the reaction to that. Tell me about selling that wine and, and selling people on even, on even trying that wine. Hmm. Um, sorry, that's... I, I, I'm not 
I, I rarely am out there selling wine, so yes. you will definitely have to uh, answer that one. I feel like there's a whole other runway of life left for Xenia. <laughs> Wait till you start selling the wine, because people would much rather see you than me. Um, you know, it was really, it wasn't hard, because I had traveled the country. Uh, Harry gave me that phenomenal opportunity to cut my teeth in uh, national FOB and international distribution that uh, I made it a point to be very consistent with the folks that I dealt with. I made it a point to be very honest and transparent with them, to always have win-win scenarios where we're not always driving them down into the ground where our distributors or our restaurants or retailers couldn't make the margins they needed to survive, because after all, if they didn't, they wouldn't be there the next year. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I came along, I said, hey, you know, we got this thing going on. Uh, called Ovum, and they weren't cheap, but they weren't expensive either. Mm -hmm. I knew they had to be in that glass pour range so guests could come in and experience something that was a little outside of the, the normal um, target they were drinking in. And uh, it, I mean, it, if I, looking back now, as you asked me that question, it was probably really hard. But I had no idea because I was so excited that the wines came out good. <laughs> Do you remember? We had friends over when we had bottled the wines. They were in from Florida. From yes. Some friends from Florida had moved here. Brian and Stephanie, they have the wine. And Brian's like, oh my God, I'm just so happy it's good. Because <laughs> I didn't want to have to lie to you. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And it was. They were they were from eleven, which is kind of like a uh, a correlation to oh seven. It was very cold. It was very hard to make. Uh, we har we are the first harvest was uh, Halloween, and then we ended harvest after November twelfth. We haven't seen that still. Xenia, and, like, and you it, keep it, I think it you know it was it was hard because John was so adamant about removing all the things we've learned, kind of bad. Shahalem and doing it our own way and there was this like big unknown um, that always kind of lingered we fought and once, a lot yeah. in the first and, few years and there was you know there was a little bit of like a, a, a dogma involved as well about you know bottling wines unfiltered and um, and so it was it, it, yeah. there was a, a lot of uncertainty mm -hmm. and once we actually bottled it and tasted it like oh this is this is good like oh wow <laughs> are you tasting what I'm tasting like yeah. They, and they smell but, very different, and they taste yeah. that the palate texture was very different. Um, the only person who was pioneering or that frontier was Barnaby and Olga at Teutonic. Yeah. But Barnaby and Olga, particularly Barnaby, um, was so dogmatic about making Mosul and Germanic style wines, and I was kind of like, if they turn out that way, great, but we're just going to do this. And we did decide to age much longer. Yeah, we were usually, yeah, exactly. Like we were usually all the, you know, Riesling, Spinogri, everything was bottled February, March, but we were aging our Riesings in barrel, you know, in summertime. And it was, it was, we just, we just didn't have experience and yeah. um, it wasn't, you know, John has 
has always tasted so much wine, it has a really informed palate, and I think that's where my uh, where I found a lot of comfort is like I know what I'm technically doing, but like is this is is this tasting is this tasting right? And so there was, there was a lot of that mm, balance happening. And and uh, you know when I was at Tim's Wine Market back in Orlando in the early days in that wine class, they said you know there were five. Uh, key characteristics that form made a wine what it is and the fifth one was the winemaker's prerogative mm -hmm. and I don't know who made that up probably Tim or Steve in the shop but the winemaker's prerogative is what do I want this wine to be and we thought the only thing we knew we wanted the wines to be that wasn't changing the composition of flavor sight and time was texture. Mm -hmm. We wanted texturally complex wines if it was possible and that's and, why we but, age longer yeah. in peril. And still to this day, we keep pushing that longer and longer. Yeah. So selling the wines was wasn't that difficult. It, it seemingly. Yeah. <laughs> after you sold Zinni on the idea, yeah. it's pretty 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 easy after that. It's like I spend a majority of our relationship trying to make her laugh, and she's really hard laugh. <laughs> Uh, so selling her on the wine was, you know, similar to that. I, I knew the angles I had to take. I had full confidence that he would be able to sell it. I was, no way. That's hindsight uh, talking. One, yes. That's one, hindsight. One hundred percent. That you know, infectious enthusiasm. <laughs> you will buy this. No I had what. a lot of great friends yeah. that said, "Hey, house, we'll we'll, we'll take that on." Yeah. And a lot of great distributors that we don't even work with today that said, "We'll we'll clear it for you." to help you out. We like you, we like that wine. It's a really good first vintage, good, good shot. Here's a leg up. 341 cases is how much we made. And why the name ovum? Ovum is egg in Latin, it's a biological term. You know, our biology coming through 19 years later, you know, today. Um, yeah, and we were making, we, we wanted to make wines in, in cement egg or egg-shaped vessels. Which, which we yeah. do, and uh, and you know it's kind of the the birth of something at the yeah. same time. Yeah. So tell me about the the, the sort of maturation process from that first vintage, 340 cases. Uh, you've, you you kind of got what you want to do. So tell me how you get from there to today. What what changes have you made? What what alterations have you made? Uh, we you know micro micro in 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 the cellar for sure we've uh, we're slowly um, stepping away from the barrels and moving more towards eggs and oval casks a thousand liter or oval casks um, yes and but it's really it's been about discovering vineyards uh, across Oregon and not just Willamette and I think that's been kind of yeah. the most exciting part of uh, we, we obviously we grew production every year a little bit but now it's just finding every single hidden Riesling vineyard um, that's not hopefully not getting grafted over because it's happening at a yeah very scary hmm. uh, pace. That's another and so and so we yeah we want to find those vineyards and you know protect them by hopefully um, you know ma making yeah. making more and more from. Wine. From a macro perspective, we've made no changes no. from what we do. From a micro perspective, well, maybe we'll de-stim, 
the Riesling and soak it on the skins for more texture development. Maybe not, depends on the vintage, uh, you know. But really, I mean, we still native ferment. We don't add anything but sulfur to the wines. We age them longer today because we understand more about our vineyards today. We still work with a few. We got so lucky. We found a few sites that are from the start that were just extraordinary and not by our own accord, you know. Uh, one of our Kiwi friends was like, oh, you should go down to Southern Oregon, <laughs> check out those vineyards. And uh, I said, Southern Oregon, it's way too hot there. And I still think that ignorance exists today. You know, you know heat is not determined by North and South in Oregon. Right. It's your uh, proxy to the Pacific or the mountains or the desert, mm -hmm. right? Because it's cold in Hood River, but that's east towards the desert but it's alpine because it's next to these mountains. And down in Southern Oregon, there's three different microclimates. We're not even talking about Umpqua and Oakton. So our best wines, I think we're finally coming to admit, are, are perhaps outside of Willamette. What are you looking for in a vineyard? I mean, obviously, existing Riesling is, mm -hmm. a, is a big thing, but what else are you looking for when you're looking for a vineyard? It, I think it is growers yeah really good growers yeah we I dictated a bit to the growers early on and then I realized oh it's like telling a chef you know or telling a farmer how to grow the product that they've been growing for the restaurant really you need to find the farmer that already gets it yeah and yeah that you can kind of align your philosophy with and you know there there have been vineyards that we've worked with once or twice and uh it just right for for our style and the way we make wine it just didn't fit and um it has probably nothing to do with the, the with the vineyard or uh it just for us it didn't cases. work you know, even though they may be exceptional vineyards. And so it's a, it's really, um, I think for us it takes probably a couple of years to, um, after we make the wine and, and bottle it and see how it changes in the bottle to really realize, to, you know, to find if, if there is something special about this place. Yes. Or, or it's just a... Well, how do you, yeah. I mean, you're it's, just recording a couple albums. So right. You don't know what your yeah. band's really all about until you're three deep. I mean, that's, that's, Vintages, you got to get through about three before you know. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, we are being very scientific about um, when the fruit, with that fruit as it's growing and when it comes in, it's just once it comes in, the science kind of goes out the window. Right. You know, we were measuring and, and mapping um, the fruit in a very statistical, oh. precise way. And then oh, the fruit doesn't have much nutrients. We're probably going to have a very long fermentation. Yeah. We know we need to put that in this part of the cellar where it's a touch warmer. Like these little yeah. tweaks, you know? That's it's really about getting to know the vineyard, where the grapes come from, by, by looking at these numbers. It's not to react to it, but yes, basically perfect. just to kind of um, observe and, and really get to know. And oftentimes these vineyards that we have these great relationships and are making these very interesting wines from or what have turned out to be interesting you know the, the growers somehow we we sync up you know mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. you know producer and musician kind of thing it really matches and when it doesn't 
what comes out isn't as authentic. So our growers, like, they're the best. Yeah, it's it's crucial to me. It's crucial to uh, to take care of growers first, and I think they often get forgotten. You know, um, so all and all I want to do, truth be told, is is grow, <laughs> but that's the last stage of the cycle for me. You know, but in full transparency, uh, post that comment. You know, I I remember the early days. I, I should say in selling the wine, like. Is anyone gonna believe that, like I made the wine? Like we made them together. We always have. We said this would be a 50-50 process, but everyone knew me as a person who sold wine. But for me, it was just a way to get to production. Mm -hmm. How else was it gonna happen with a boy from Orlando <laughs> who had no money? I had to start somewhere. And you know what? I think today that roadmap is is totally opposite. Meaning the roadmap when I started was, if you want to start a winery, you need to learn you know, how to make the wine. And now, if you don't know how to sell the wine, you're screwed. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty common. Everybody will say, winemaking is easy. Selling wine, it's, it's hard. Sure. It's always been the case, yeah. And, and, and for me, from day one, <laughs> you don't want to do it. You're gonna kill it when you yeah. do it. But from day one, um, I also wanted Ovum to never, there, there will never be a decision about money that will affect the fidelity of our, you know, conviction in what we produce, right? Because I've seen it happen in multiple wineries, importers, distributors. At some point, you know, oof. Hence, why we why we still have uh, day jobs, multiple jobs is, is yeah. It's fun working four jobs, you know. <laughs> um, but that's a really crucial aspect of what we do, um, and it's it's not a holier than thou situation. It's just we really want to understand what Oregon has to offer. Yeah, and I think you have to go back to when monks and friars and folks were making wine and trading it and bartering it. They didn't know what grapes worked where. They had to figure that out over hundreds of years. They had that opportunity without the monetization of the business mm -hmm. affecting what should and shouldn't be planted. Mm -hmm. It's happening today. One of our beautiful Riesling blocks was purchased by uh, someone who's been in the business for a long time, grafted it over to Chardonnay, never even called us. Yeah. I mean, we made one of the best Rieslings we had ever made in 2016 from that vineyard doesn't exist anymore. No longer will produce Riesling from there. And this is happening, unfortunately, at a rapid rate yeah. as, you know, in Willamette, N nowhere else, but chasing the uh, Chardonnay, Chardonnay and really the higher price for my wine dragon. So what would be the ultimate compliment someone could pay an, an Ovum wine? What would you, what would be the best thing someone could say drinking your wine? Mm. Oof. It's a tough one. This reminds me of something else that you know we love. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, to me, anybody that's, um, you know, that always says, oh, I, I don't like Riesling or I don't like a Wurstraminer, and then they have our wines, ah, and it's like, ah, uh, and it really opens their mind. I, I think, to me, that's the goal, is like, is just, um, encouraging or uh, yeah encouraging people to to be open-minded and and really because it's such an amazing uh, grape and if there's more people buying and and drinking Riesling then you know hopefully yeah. it will it will stop grafting over <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a yeah it's tough it's mm -hmm. tough but yeah it's it's uh I don't think it's a coincidence whatever power is out there or life is driving us to realize that what's happening just south of Eugene all the way to the California border is very complex and um, I don't know why but I've always been a value guy. I love value in investing whether it's in, in wine or a, a hundred-year-old underground space that just is crying out to be a wine bar, you know, that no one could figure out what to do with. It just, it seemed too good of an opportunity. And, you know, I always, you know, everyone hates Riesling and Gewurz. Really from a production standpoint, from a winery standpoint. Yes. That it's just, yeah. they're so hard to make and they're so hard to sell. Cool. That's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> Yeah. For, it's true. So let's talk about the space. So we're in Lakov here, some tree and winery bar here in, on Alberta Street. So yeah. tell us about discovering the space, like you said, and, and discovering that it needed to be a wine bar. Most importantly, Xenia said no, no. <laughs> multiple times. Okay. But uh, it, 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 I think it was uh, in the end, it, it was probably good that I said no because. Well, without saying no at this point. We're not doing anything. Right. But right. but there's a reason why this. It was a at, at a certain point that it was like it was too good to be true. Kind of no, no is a barrier. Yeah, it's a point of entry. Like if I don't get the no, then I'm not. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> no way. You know. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, I I kept saying no, 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 and uh, finally the landlord came back and said, "How well, about well, you?" <laughs> well, but that that's what I'm. Yeah, I mean, you know. I had realized what could happen from a licensing standpoint. And there were a lot of bars who wanted to get down here, but um, the OLCC had some uh, restrictions and, you know, again, very difficult. Perfect for me. Like, I don't know why I crave that. But a couple of our friends that used to work at Ned Ludd, this amazing restaurant, Seminole restaurant in, here in Portland, um, on MLK, not too far from here, they moved on to open a dive bar just down the street. And I said, you know, I'd love to have a place where I could entertain, you know, our our distributors and our wine club members or those just interested in learning about dry Riesling and Gewurztraminer in Oregon. And they said, there's a place down the street from us. I had like we lived here uh, right around the corner for five years. Uh, I know the street that there's nothing there. <laughs> and then I remembered in the back of my mind that a friend of mine threw like a speakeasy pop up. They weren't selling liquor here, but there was just folding tables here. And some of the top bartenders from Manhattan and like Chicago were making cocktails down here. 
maybe some other nefarious things were happening as well. And uh, I remember, I went down there. I know that place. There is a place there. I came down here and I was just like, how can this not be a bar? And then, you know, I told Xenia and she's like, you're not opening a, a wine bar? It was kind of the Riesling. You want to make four wines the first vintage? That was the same response here. And this is probably like next to uh, Ovum and us making Big Salt. This is the best thing we've done other than having an awesome four-year-old child. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, who would have thought people would walk down an, an alley, an unmarked alley, and then come down a hidden flight of stairs to sit at an 18-seat bar, you know? But we've been, to just like our wines, we've been um, completely blessed that folks will embrace it. I think because we're trying to be real every step of the way. And what are you selling here? What is it that, what are you trying to draw people in with? And what are you trying to showcase? Um, what producers like us that don't have a voice, that are doing the same thing as us, maybe they're in Oregon, we are always carrying Super cool Oregon producers, you know, Pinot, Chard, Pinot Gris, whatever. What are you doing? Something cool? Are you trying to uh, find the true heart of Oregon? And you know, my recent gong banging is like Oregon is the France in the of the U.S. We can gr naturally grow all these varieties from from out in the Dalles all the way to Cave Junction. We're growing probably over 100 different varieties. Most of it's dry farmed, just like France. It's just not achievable in most of Washington, California. I was just in the Finger Lakes. They have their own struggles there. Or, and I was in the Finger Lakes. Oh man, Riesling was really acidic that year. We got tons of rain. We had to put in this drain tile underneath the vineyard a million dollars later. And I'm thinking, no, we have it easy here. <laughs> our vineyards just grow. Oh, three tons to the acre later, it makes this phenomenal wine with very little influence from us. Like Oregon is just utterly incredible for the bounty of transparent things it will create without little, without much intervention. Couldn't have been more lucky to come here, and we were thinking about California, like, which we love. Yeah, but it would have been not so a much chance. harder. Yeah, like the 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 momentum that is behind Oregon right now, in the amount of runway that's left before we truly take off, is so much longer than anywhere else in the world at this point, in my mind, and. Uh, I could say at least for the U.S. I mean, maybe Portugal has has a little bit to go, uh, just like us. But we're so lucky to be here. Yeah, um, with we haven't even really talked about Big Salt yet, which is um, really what's the culmination of Oregon in a bottle for what we do. Mm -hmm. um, there are some vineyards that we felt just weren't quite right for ovum, but they were still growing extraordinary fruit. Right. It just didn't translate well into our cellar. We just, I, in 2016, decided what if we put Riesling and Gewürztraminer together? 
And Muscat. And, and every other bridal that people don't like to drink right, uh, right. on their own and, and <laughs> into one Mueller bottle. Mueller Turgal. Yes, exactly. Even harder to produce than yeah, converts. Oh, yeah. We want that. Um, and we've been fermenting now up to seven vineyards for all the way towards the Columbia Gorge, down to southern Oregon, to southern Willamette, up here in the Dundee Hills. Vineyards that were planted in the 70s and the 80s that are still farmed by those people that planted it. We're fermenting it together in one tank. So, oh, Gewürztraminer, 1976 dry farm, Cory clone Gewürztraminer. Cool, yeah, pick that, you know, September 23rd, October 19th. Recently picked in Southern Oregon, because it's colder down there, right? We're learning these things. Uh, comes in and goes into the same tank. And it's all fermenting together. Mother Nature is making this complex blend rather than us making it in the laboratory after the fact. Still native ferment, still only adding just sulfur. And uh, most importantly, Xenia said no. The first time, right? <laughs> you what? No, that's not what we do at Ovum. It's barrel, it's egg, it's cask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think these vineyards will make something really complex together. No. So we got through the nose and then <laughs> said, okay, do it. Uh, we made 800 cases the first vintage and 16, 1,700 cases in 17 and 4,100 cases um, just last year in 18. And we get more emails letters, online orders for that wine, and people saying, I never had uh, a wine like this, period. Not just from the US or from Oregon. Just, and it's very unusual, and it's the culmination of everything Oregon has to offer that we understand today. I'm sure we're ignorant of many things that we will learn in the future, but it, you know, it's about it's not about the vineyards as much as the vintage. It's capturing this place on a macro level. Big salt. Yeah, and, and then again, protecting those varietals that we really love. For sure. And yes. As people or wineries shrink their Riesling production and Gewurz production as it is happening, it's like somehow Big Salt came out of that for us to absorb a lot of the um, the struggles that the the farmers would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's really changed our lives as much as it is, as it has theirs. I can see that. Yeah, you guys. <laughs> a lot of interesting things going on here that I can see would be kind of life changing. So, uh, so tell me about the the industry that you came into and what what you what you thought of the Oregon wine industry as, as you came into it and what and what changes you've seen and what, where kind of where it stands today versus when you came in. The Oregon wine business. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. You know. I. I. I mean. Obviously, it grew. Um, but I think there's still that sense of community that was there when I arrived here in 2007. Um, it's nice, you know, there's a, like that pendulum swing that John, there's more cool kids and not so much about pioneers anymore. Um, more opportunities for, for you know, younger generation. 
to to make wine, uh, possibility to make wine um, that really didn't necessarily exist. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a really it's uh, changing in, in, mm -hmm. and it hasn't almost mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to the same. Yeah, I, I think what I learned was working at Shehalem and then till now was there was a first wave, you know, the, the pioneers, you know, Charles Corey, David Lett, Dick Erath, um, folks down at Hillcrest, right? Richard Summer, yeah. Yeah, Southern Oregon, huh? uh, comes in again. There it is. Um, they, they planted like everything that they could plant, right? Chasselas, Muscat, Oatmeal, right? What are these grapes? They were making them, and they made blends, co-fermented wines like Big Salt back then, but they didn't have the knowledge, right? They didn't have, that's why they shared everything with one another. Um, then, you know, as I should have included David Adelsheim back then. Um, you know, the, the Harry Peterson Nedry's come along and say, well, hey, we can add more framework and science to this. You know, it's the second wave in the early 80s. Then you see an influx and a third wave where some French companies like Druen are coming. Everyone is still very convivial and sharing information. And they, we know what we have, right? We have Pinot Noir that does well up here. We have Pinot Gris. Chardonnay was struggling, um, part to, somewhat from a stylistic perspective, somewhat from the, from how we were growing it, um, and and selling it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they knew what they had. Okay, what do we do with it? We're going to spread the message in a very specific way, and they spread it so well that between us moving here and today there are double the amount of wineries and you know those wineries don't make one skew they make like 10 mm -hmm. so if you go from 900 or 391 to near a thousand we're really quadrupling or quintupling the amount of skews out there right so what is born out of that is often yet another change and whether we knew it or not when we started I think we're part of this fourth wave of saying, maybe we need to revisit the original pioneers' idea that diversify the, the diversity. Yeah. yeah. There's only so much Pinot Noir we can all make and sell. Diversity <laughs> is perhaps the future for Oregon rather than the hegemony of Pinot Noir mm -hmm. that has existed over the last decade to two decades, mm -hmm. but they needed to figure out how to make it work. I, I mean, for some people that think, oh, Pinot Noir doesn't belong here, I, I think it does. It's just not ubiquitous. Yeah. Kind of find your flagship, then follow it, and then figure out what else you can do after that. Kind of, kind of, make, kind of makes sense. You, you have something that you can hang your hat on, and then you find out what's next, right? You have to figure out what works, yeah. you know, for where you are, with without input, in my mind. So what comes next, then? What do you see for the future of Oregon wine? I have a fuse attached to me. I'm going to shoot off, so you better say what no, you want. No, that's okay. Uh, uh, well, diversity, right? So, and I think it, we're going to realize, oh my gosh, uh, Hood River is, and White Salmon across the river and Underwood are unbelievably beautiful places 
that also grow unbelievable everything from pears to Riesling to Albarino, right? And then you go to Mosher, Menthea is growing there, and Tempranillo, maybe some Pinot works in a certain pocket here, but we can't cast this blanket generalization that, oh, eh, Burgundy grows Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. No, Burgundy grew Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Aligote, Pinot Blanc, all these things. The monetization of the business has obliterated diversity. We will find it with the remaining runway that we have left in the entire state mm -hmm. because land prices will be more affordable outside of the Willamette that oh, also happens to create something super complex. It just might not be the easiest thing to sell. So what? It will taste good and ideally be more affordable. Yeah, and, uh, and there's also, to me, importance of maybe let's not plant every single available acre to grapes mm -hmm. and protecting what's um, what's already there and sort of rather than just planting more uh, is is protecting our land really. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's more sustainable for yeah. the future. Yeah. So what about for you two as you look ahead for your various businesses? What do you see as you look, say, 10 years down the road for Ovum, for, for Lacov, for anything else? I don't think we ever thought it all would work. <laughs> so it's kind of like, whoa, you know? We're attached to something else that's now driving. I mean, I mean the, yeah, the, the goal was to focus on Ovum and, and that you know, for, for the rest of our lives and, and maybe have a, our own piece of land somewhere, a farm, a kind of self-sustainable farm that we can live off. And because um, cur currently, you know, I have a day job and John has multiple jobs and there's the cave. And, and so we're just kind of, all of this is leading into something that's much more simpler and um, uh, like, yeah. Yeah. Idyllic. <laughs> no, I, I mean, the, the original dream, you know, walking the dog and these, you know, deathly hot, humid days in Florida, dreaming about what do I want it to be, you know. It was, we'd love to have an estate vineyard using all the knowledge that we've gained, absorbing, you know, what's happened in Oregon, where we think the vintages might be going, which I don't really know, but I have a decent feeling, mm -hmm. right? There's no data-driven analysis to get us to uh, get us out of how we feel about something. Um, there's just still a lot of touch-feel, right, in, involved in our business, a lot of gut. Yeah, to get into that estate vineyard, you know, be able to walk out on the back yeah. porch, have a little coffee, I'm not have say, to worry about the 82 emails that wait. Yeah, and estate vineyard is like 10 acres, something that we can... Manage, manage. Our, manage ourselves. We don't know how to do that yet. Yeah. I mean, we, we think we have an idea, but we know we won't know until we, we start. Um, we're, we're close to it, but it's always how, how much longer can we do all these other things. We never thought Lakov was going to be successful, and, and here, here it is. So, um, you know. I don't think we see ourselves taking a ton more risks like we have. We're just happy to, 
to follow through on the ones that already exist and have kind of paid us back uh, for being patient and patient, sure. saying no to the right things <laughs> and yes to the wrongs. Yeah, that's right. She said no to the vineyard yet because it doesn't seem like it can happen. If she yes, oh, she has no. said no okay. to uh, well, vineyards, but yes. it was more soupy, you know? It was kind of a <laughs> soupy no. And okay, I think I should do it. <laughs> we did buy some, some land and then we ended up selling it because we needed to make more big salt. Yeah. And, and in our gut, we kind of said maybe it wasn't time. Maybe we need to be somewhere else. Because we bought land in the Eola Amity Hills, which is an utterly phenomenal place to grow mm -hmm. almost any uh, cool climate variety. But it's not the right place for us. So we sold the land. I'm sure we'll regret it at some point, but. No regrets. No regrets. <laughs> no. So you say no, so you know there's no regrets. Right, right. <laughs> Um, so as yeah. you as you guys may know, uh, Linfield has a wine studies program now. We're, we have a couple of wine studies majors here in our audience today. So what would your words of wisdom be to a graduating Linfield wine studies major who wanted to enter the industry? What would the what would what would you tell them? Um, well, you know, on on the production side, what I tell my interns at Argyle is. Um, you know, the, the worst thing that can happen to a winemaker is to develop a seller palette. That's where my, kind and, of where my brain was and, going. You know, and I think this is why all of them work so well for John and I, is that he was always my buffer against developing the, you know, seller palette because, you know, he's, he's so much more informed. And so I tell my interns, like, just taste wine. Don't outside of your region, always go to wine shops, attend um, wine tastings, think about wine as this global product and not just a regional thing because it's, um, it's, it's very limiting and it's, uh, it's a, such a... Um, What's limiting? A limiting being you know being only focused on on your own your own place your own only on Oregon like it's and and only on Willamette it's just there is just so much more out there to explore and you have to be open-minded that's yeah that's that. uh, you say said it very well I'm very you know I was gonna say the global perspective because um, that's kind of what wine's all about, right? You can uh, like taste that vineyard in Provence and that bottle of rosé or the saltiness of, of the sea, you know, inflecting on Falangina or Greco de Tufo. Ver, you know, voracious curiosity is yep. really what will define the endless pleasure that the wine business can give you. The, the, just wine, wine as a whole, but certainly it's the greatest business ever. It's one of the oldest ever. You still can't like really go to school and come out and just become a doctor, right, of wine. You have to live it. Yeah, it's it's such right? a yeah, it's such a luxury. It's 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 just wine, and we're not saving lives here. And um, you oh. know, it's it's a very right. simple uh, kind of indulgent profession to be in I, so you, you can't take it too seriously and because so at the end of the day it's you know it should just bring you a lot of joy mm -hmm. and enjoyment and so 
I remember freaking out one day. I was in my, I think I was driving like a Dodge Intrepid from like 91 or something. And I was sitting behind the uh, a retailer in Orlando, an important retailer. He was called like Park Avenue Wine Merchants. And uh, I didn't have the allocation of like Paul Hobbs, Russian River Chard, 99 point Russian River Chardonnay for him. And I was freaking out and I called my portfolio manager, uh, Alicia Casebeer, who's gone on to do amazing things in the business. Um, she goes, it's just wine, babe. <laughs> what are you freaking out? It's just wine, babe. They're not going to get the case of Chardonnay. Yeah. The day will go on. Yeah, but this, uh, they're going to be so upset. She's like, there's another Chardonnay tomorrow. It's just wine, babe. And like, it's never, I've never forgotten that. Because the, the industry gets so stressful, usually for monetary reasons. Yeah, exactly. Uh, some people's feelings can get hurt from time to time uh, for reasons that you probably didn't expect. But all in all, they can like, feel pretentious at time as well. At times as well, and it's just you know, it's just it's just wine. It's not. We're so lucky. It's not. Yeah, exactly. We're so lucky. I mean, people come through this door like to the establishment to have a glass of wine that we get to serve them. I mean, I tell this to the folks that work here. We're just incredibly lucky. That's what we get to focus on, our lives. Yeah. You're making somebody happy every day, hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> or making them feel better, <laughs> at least. Yeah. It's a pretty nice, yeah. Gift. It's a pretty nice gift to have. Yeah. 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 So I got one last question for you. It's one of, one of our favorite questions to ask, and I just Honestly, I can't wait to hear your answer to this. So, what is the key to a successful marriage in the wine industry? Hmm. <laughs> Apparently, lots wow. of no's. Uh, hmm. See, this it's, is it. This well, is it. <laughs> Listening to each other. We're waiting to talk. I don't want to talk over you. You know, I don't. I don't I know. Have that, an idea, uh, yeah, but, uh, but I don't know that there is a you know something like specific to wine industry that I can offer as an advice. I think marriage is um, is a commitment, uh, and it certainly is a it's a very it can be very difficult as well. Um, but it, first of all, it's, it's a commitment that you make to each other, and so um, there has to be a common ground. Um, and a balance, I guess. And I think that's what we have is we're very different, very different personalities, but we kind of balance each other with my no's and, and a lot of John's yeses. <laughs> and it's it's a it's a tough, like it's a, I, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of work as well. Like it's like anything in life, it's you just I mean, we have to believe we've had it. a lot of challenges, and in times I thought, oh, maybe I could do this better without Xenia. Um, but the reality always came back that, that the wines would never be as complex without uh, the balanced female perspective, right? And I think there's just a tremendous amount of male perspective within the wines today. And uh, I knew at some point deep in my heart, like the complexities, we would never achieve them the highest highs without each other. I mean, one of our labels is Toro y Scorpio, like the Torah, the bull and the scorpion. She's a Scorpio, I'm a Taurus. They're very compatible signs, but they're very intense, you know? Um, and, you know, every every once in a while, Xenia will just, you know, cut me down with just one sting. And I just, you know, you're left reeling about it for a week. 
Um, but you know, um, the the bull gets back up. We keep rolling and like we yeah. keep working together. And it's been just incredibly difficult. But we believe in something greater than even ourselves and our relationship alone is is yet to be found and it's more fun finding it together than apart uh i think in the end though com compromise and listening to the other honestly and earnestly right. compromising you know even when you don't want to is really what what makes any relationship work you have to give up a little bit Everyone has to feel like they won something. Otherwise, you know, they won't be there tomorrow. Whether that's the relationship or the retailer or the restaurant, right? Or the friendship. <laughs> it's true, it's a basic life stuff, right? Yeah, it's, a, yeah. It's, Unfortunately, it's nothing, most folks don't yeah. adopt it. Yeah, it's, it's nothing that just about wine industry or it's just life in general. Yeah. Definitely one of our one of our more interesting answers. I appreciate that. Thank oh, really? you. Yeah. Yeah. We get some good answers. So like, like wine. Yeah. <laughs> Drunk every night. I <laughs> uh, no, not usually that, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that's all the questions that we have for you. Uh, is there anything we didn't cover that we should have? Anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? I got an open forum here at the end if there's something we didn't talk about. No, oh, I, I don't know. I'm sure John has something to add. It's <laughs> like a dangerous guy to give a live microphone to. Yes, right. Yeah, yes. you know, well, the big salt, I'm glad we got big salt in there because it's not always apparent and it's kind of like the biggest factor of our business and world right now. Um, no, that's. Yeah. Yeah. Let's we get you. Excellent. A lot. <laughs> you did that. Yeah. Yes. It, was, it, was, it was wonderful. Thank yeah. you so much for yeah, your time thanks. today. We yeah. really do appreciate this. And of course. For winning us into your awesome space here in Portland. This is so cool. So Thanks for the flexibility. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.